Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's only one word that matters in business in the early days, and that is the word survival. Whilst you're alive, throw yourself 100% into whatever you do and make the best of this wonderful life that we all lead. Welcome to the Boom Podcast from Virgin Media Business. I'm Nikki Beatty and we're back for another round of entrepreneurial tales, top tips and advice from the business owners right here in the thick of it. So far, we've taken a peek into the worlds of food, finance, innovation and apps. But today, we're disrupting for good as we celebrate the stories of commercial companies that are also doing their bit to make a positive impact on the world, considering people, planet and profit all in the same breath. Coming up later on, I'll be speaking to social entrepreneur Nathaniel Peet, whose work fostering entrepreneurship in young people and building renewable energy systems has seen him win countless awards, as well as making huge differences to the lives of the people he works with. He'll be sharing his story and telling us what it was like to be selected for a leadership summit with Richard Branson on Necker Island last year. But first, in the studio today, I'm very pleased to welcome Tim Westwell, the founder of Pucker Herbs, whose award-winning ranges, like Pucker Teas, not only make a nice brew, but have a positive impact across the globe in terms of well-being, sustainable farming and ethical supply chains. Hello, Tim. Hi, Nikki. Also in the studio, a warm welcome to Dan Watson, the young inventor and entrepreneur behind Safety Net Technologies, a company tackling some of the fishing industry's biggest problems with innovative design that ensures each catch is not only more sustainable, but also more profitable too. And I should say that Safety Net was also a winner in the equivalent of the Voom competition in 2012, Pitch to Rich. Hello, Dan. Hi, Nikki. Nice to meet you. So two very different businesses here. But before we start getting into the details, I'm going to begin with an open question. If you were both to address any aspiring entrepreneur out there, why should they be bothered about incorporating an element of social or environmental responsibility? I mean, some people would believe that's the job for governments, charities or philanthropic millionaires. Dan, you first. I think it's really important because environmental issues, sort of the, the social problems that are going on at the moment, they're problems because they have solutions that could be offered to them, but they haven't been yet. And so within that, there's value. And if you can see where that value is and how you can actually find something that people can use and it will work within a system where people are willing to maybe pay for it or you can transfer that value across, then there, there are solutions to be made. And it's a really rich, wide world out there with lots of problems to solve. And you can do that in a responsible and socially minded way while also doing so with a, a sensible business case behind it. So do you think you would ever do anything in terms of designing a product or starting a business that didn't have social conscience within it? Well, I think probably not, because the most interesting problems are the ones with the social and, and environmental side to them. So you have such a broad range of things that you can start to interact with, and it's people, it's the environment, it's, it's different bits of science and technology. It's a really rich set of things to work with. 
Tim, what about you? I don't think we should rely on governments to set the social agenda around the world. I think we're all citizens of the world and we've got equal opportunities to create our destinies together. So if you're thinking of starting a business, um, why not think about the social aspects? Because they all go hand in hand, really. We're all aiming for a better world. We're all hoping for a healthier world as well in some ways. So I think it begins at grassroots. So if businesses are starting to take the charge and to take the initiative, then hopefully the bigger scale governments in the world will wake up to those factors as well. So right now, who's leading the way? Is it the startups or is it the big companies? I think the startups start the initiatives and then the big companies try and kind of do retrofitting, so to speak. So I think for you know, Pucka, we started with purpose at our heart, basically. So it was always there at the beginning to create a, w- a world which is healthier and happier through connecting people to the power of herbs. And that was right at our core. And we needed to make a profit to do that and make the profit then serves a purpose. I guess a lot of companies have been making profit quite a while now, and now they're thinking about how they can perhaps retrofit ethics and sustainability into what they're doing. I respect those companies. I see they are making changes, uh, but I think it starts with the smaller companies. Those are the ones that are kind of the pioneers, evangelists, so to speak, and create the wake-up calls for the bigger ones. And, Tim, when you started Pucker with Sebastian Pohl in 2001, aside from the well-being aspect of your products, did you know from the very beginning that you wanted to have a positive impact on the world in other ways? I mean, how did it all begin? It really all began because of our personal lives, basically. We really were fascinated by herbs. We felt that people could benefit and learn more about the benefits of herbs and use them in their lives. So, you know, we hand over our health to the doctors and our our body to the doctors in some way. And we thought that nature, you know, thousands of years of wisdom with with healthcare systems from India and China had given us a, a vision that you could take more control of your health if you get to know a bit more about yourself and what works for you in terms of diet, sorry, diet, lifestyle, and perhaps some incorporating herbs into your diet as well. I like liet. That's a really Li- good neologism, liet. isn't it? <laughs> lifestyle yeah. and diet, liet. Yeah, yeah that's, there we go. Liet yeah. tea. Liet tea, for example. Let's talk about pucker because in Hindi, pucker means either well-cooked or solid or proper. Um, did you mean it in the British way? We, we meant it in the Hindi way, actually. It also means when the fruit is ripe right. on the tree yes. and it's not just too hard or too soft. It's just pucker. It's that perfect moments and we've obviously we took that into the UK and Paco is perfect moments here it's top quality yeah. so we thought it'd be a great name to aspire to be actually to be Paco to be genuine in what we do so did you have any role models at your initial point were there companies that you were looking at because in the UK there wasn't anything like that oh uh, there were imports weren't there I guess we didn't no we just saw what was out there and we wanted to change things really so we took the initiative to, you know, when herbal teas were around about 14, 15 years ago, they were pretty dusty. They never tasted as good as they smelt. And we thought there's something to do here, really. So and while we're doing that, let's create something that's worthwhile in terms of being organic, connecting to farms and growers, so that the whole supply chain, not just the people are drinking our tea, but the, you know, the farms and growers are benefiting from what we do together. But did you realise that for people to take doses of herbs in the form that for example, Chinese medicine would use them or, or Ayurvedic medicine from India would use them. Did you realise that people around the world are unlikely to do that? So putting them in a sachet to make a little tisane or is yeah. that what you would call it? Yeah, it's, it's our soft touch really. We, we all like a cup of tea in, in the UK, don't we? Yeah. We're, we're um, a nation of tea drinkers. So it's a habit we're used to already. So we thought let's continue with that habit, but something 
extra special, something a bit different into those teas, something that not just cuts out the caffeine or cuts out the milk or cuts out the sugar, but something that also gives benefits. It helps you sleep, helps you detox, revitalizes, it relaxes you. And, you know, herbs have been known to do that for thousands of years. So it's just opening up the treasure chest again, really. And every business has hurdles to cross in the beginning. Well, hurdles for the rest of your life, presumably, if you want to grow. But did you have mistakes in the beginning when you were setting up Pubka? Um, of course. I'm human. <laughs> so what were they? What advice would you give to an aspiring I, I, I can't tell them all, actually. That's give us a too... good example. Ooh, um, at the very beginning, we were so inward. We named our first three teas like Kaffa, Pitta and Vata. And these are Ayurvedic terms that no one knows about. But we were kind of too out there. And uh, we nearly didn't make it because we were too out there, basically. So we, we had to rein ourselves in a bit and call them refreshing, relaxing and, and revitalising teas. And so people can't, kind of got the gist of what our teas might do for them. So we were a bit too out there, really. Out with the fairies, some people might say to begin with. Off with the fairies. Off with the fairies, even. I like to go out with the fairies as well sometimes. But yeah, that's another <laughs> story. <laughs> so Vata, Pita and Kapha are the three body types that in Ayurvedic medicine identify your... Your, your body type, your constitution. And, and your energetic levels yeah, as well. Yeah, absolutely, yes. And yeah. so in doing that, you were starting off from a very high point, weren't mm. you, of consciousness. So you've, you've, you've still kept the same ingredients, but you've just marketed slightly differently. Yeah, we, you know, the idea is to make herbs as accessible to people. So it's a soft, gentle uh, engagement, uh, introduction to herbs. And hopefully people will like the flavour of our mint tea. For example, we've got a free mint tea, which tastes delicious. And our detox tea, which makes them, you know, want to come back and try a bit more. And, you know, through that, they start to feel, they start to feel some difference as well, not just taste the difference. So you drink your own teas? Absolutely. You take your own herbs? Yes, Mom. Um, I do have to ask you one thing. It's not product placement, but this huge new, I call it a craze, for turmeric. Yes. Everywhere you go, people's got, people are drinking turmeric milk, turmeric chai latte. Turmeric is haldi, we call it in Hindi. Yes. So it's like a, a root? It's the golden goddess from India, basically. So it is the root. It's part of the ginger family and... We've been using it for, well, not we, because I haven't been around for thousands of years, but humans have been using it for thousands of years, and it's been used to help in conditions to uh, for skin, cardiovascular protection, cellular protection, liver uh, protection as well. So it's a great all-round herb. It's a great herb for the 21st century, actually. So this was going to be my question. You are now making products with turmeric in them. Mm. Every time something becomes popular... You can always add it to a tea, can't you? Which presumably keeps your business fresh and moves it on and keeps health trends moving in the right direction. We've got 38, 40 teas now, so we can't make all of them turmeric. It would get boring, actually. But herbs like camel, people know, and probably lavender and mint and so on, and fennel uh, are obvious herbs that people know in the West. But there's other spectacular herbs around in, around the world that can come and kind of bridge in our lives in this busy 21st century, basically. So turmeric's just one of those great herbs and there are others to follow. Watch it's, your space, basically. Yeah, and watch your white T-shirts because it stains like mad, doesn't it? It does, but your teeth remain quite fine, so don't worry about your teeth, Nikki. You can I'm, drink lots of turmeric tea and the teeth will stay gloriously glistening white. So they're, actually, they're actually not white, okay, but sorry. I really thank you for that. Okay. <laughs> um, and I, I eat turmeric on a daily basis because I have dal and rice. What sort of tea did you have today, Dan? I had straightforward uh, tea. Actually, it was just plain old PG. 
And have you ever had any sort of herbal tea and enjoyed it? Are you yet to be converted? Um, no, I like herbal tea. In the afternoon, it's nice to have it to calm down a bit after a stressful morning. Mm. Um, but yeah, I remember having loads of great teas in Russia and places like that. It was really good. And uh, sometimes I need to pick up in the morning, but otherwise, yeah, for what, sure. What took you to Russia? Um, I was working for a company in Moscow doing some design work. Don't, don't they put spoonfuls of jam in their tea in Russia? They might, but yeah. they didn't when I was there. Yeah, they do. <laughs> um, Dan, looking at your portfolio, it's clear to see that you are an inventor and you're also a problem solver. You've designed things ranging from nut catapults to projects for the UK space industry. What's a nut catapult? Uh, so this was a product that um, we designed at college and it was... It was sort of supposed to be for like the, the Christmas market and a bit of fun. And it just looks like a catapult and you, you put the nut in a pouch and you fire it into a block of wood, so to, like a nutcracker. Um, and it was just another way of looking at how you could break a nut open. So with great force then? A lot of force, yeah. Big bits of elastic. And, so uh, quite yeah. dangerous And a big then. bang. Yeah, we tried to minimise the danger, okay. but uh, it, not always. <laughs> so how did you land on the fishing industry with what we're talking about today, safety net technologies? What brought that about? So I started this about seven years ago as a project in my final year at uni. And I was studying mechanical engineering and product design. And people had just really started talking about the discards issue in fishing. So how fishermen were catching the wrong kinds of fish. Um, they were having to throw them back into the ocean dead. And politics was coming in. There was lots of negotiation around laws and rules, which have recently come into play. But the technical solution, while being addressed in fairly incremental ways, didn't look like it had been approached in a really radical sort of disruptive way and studying engineering and being based in Scotland at the time near a lot of the fisheries I thought well this could be a great year-long project to have a look at and as a naive student thought this is something I could maybe have an effect on um, which fortunately stayed true and was able to sort of put some energy into it for about a year and ended up looking at light and seeing how that could act as a stimulus to encourage fish escapement from different fishing gears. Now, explain that further. OK, so when it started off, we were looking at all sorts of things like net geometries, or I should say I was, and I was looking at how in the meshes of the net, when they're pulled through the water, they can close up really tightly, mm -hmm. and that acts as a very physical barrier for fish to escape. But in the first place, fish weren't seeming to always want to escape from nets because they didn't really know necessarily they were there. Uh, they didn't know what was going on around them, so we needed a way to sort of encourage them to leave. And started looking at light and experiments that people had done in academia to actually find ways of different lights and different species and what would happen if you applied them to the processes. And around the 70s, someone had done some great stuff, but it hadn't really gone much further than that. So then it was looking at, OK, well, if, if we use light as a way of, of testing this and, and have to introduce it to this really rough sort of system of mechanisms and, you know, rough handling and oceans and chemical attack and physical attack, all this stuff. How do you do that in a way that's reliable and that humans can use? And this really became the key focus. And this is where I think we've put a lot of us time into the design of things, which is fishermen have a hard enough job as it is already. And if you ask them to start instituting new things into their processes, which are hard to use, the likelihood of them using it is really low. So we looked at how you can do that reliably and make it easier for fishermen to use. So was it a concern for fish? Was it a concern for the future of the oceans? What really drove you? So or was it seriously the mechanics and the things you were working on? It was kind of everything. So, I mean, from addressing things from like a design perspective in the sense of the sort of design thinking, if you like, you have to look at things holistically. You have to say, OK, there's a human factor here, there's a technology, there's a politics and regulation, and there's a financial. And so it was really... Every one of those things was involved in this industry in some way or other, and some of them were being addressed and some of them weren't. And the bits that we addressed were the, the sort of the technical bit, because that's where I had the most to give, I think. 
But but really it was everything. It was like we're catching too many fish and we're not really finding a way that we can massively change how that happens. So you can have all the policies and laws and stuff and you can punish fishermen as much as you like. But if you don't then give them tools to try and address this, then their livelihoods are effective. The future of societies, are, you know, fishing societies are affected and the future of this food source is affected. And we have roughly a fifth of the world who depend on fish to eat and we've got a growing population, so it should be addressed in some way. So, Dan, you mentioned the use of light. Yeah. Is this just one little device? I mean, what are we talking about here physically? What would I be looking at? So it started as one little device, and it started as this ring that was supposed to be like an emergency escape hatch, if you like. So imagine like a portal in the net, and it's lit up. And that light could do any number of things, which we've since found. So different species can see different types of light in different ways. So, for instance, fish can see um, visible light of different wavelengths, different colours, if you like, and, and flashing in different ways, different intensities, and they'll respond very differently depending on which species they are. So, for instance, if you were to, say, uh, introduce a, a yellow light, let's say, as an example, to, to a cod, it might swim away from it, but a haddock might swim towards it. Mm. So you've already got a way of putting some logic into the fishing process and saying, well, this will repel, this will attract. So you start having more choice than you did before. And when you look across the spectrum and then look at the different ways that light is actually put into the different fishing gears, you have all these different choices that you can start to make about what you're trying to keep and what you're trying to encourage to escape. So we've done loads of work now about looking at the sizes, the shapes, how you can program these things, where you put them. And all our trials have looked at the different ways you can put these into the systems. So what does it look like now as a device? How big is it? So it's a tough question. We have five or six different devices and we're looking to have more. So some of them are really small. So if you imagine something like the size of a dinner plate um, and that lights up and it can change colour and it can attach to fishing pots or or trawls. Um, And then you've got some that are bits of essentially lit up rope that are like 30 metres long Mm. and they can attach all over different places as well. Wow. So can it be retrofit or does it have to be part of a new net that's being built or a new pot that's being made? So... We always wanted it to be retrofitable. It has to be because I think fishermen invest a lot of money in their gear and we wanted something that not only could it be retrofitted but it could also be taken off a piece of gear when it reached the end of its life, the gear or the device, and be replaced or be added to the new one. So we didn't want people to have to spend tons of money to maintain these things. So, Tim, will you explain now to us what Pucker looks like as a business today? So, for example, where do you make your money and in what areas are you concentrating on making a difference? So two-part question in a sense. Yeah, sure. So we get about 150 herbs from around the world, about 30 countries. We bring all the herbs and put them into our recipes and, and pack them down in the West Country. And um, through that, you know, we've got to an amazing point where we're nearly making like a million tea bags a day now, basically. So we started puckering my spare bedroom and and said my business partner, who's, who's our herbalist, he started brewing the teas in his kitchen. And, you know, from his kitchen in my spare bedroom, there's now 100 people down in the West Country in Bristol. And so it's quite significant in terms of, you know, creating a real business with creating real jobs. Um, so there's a lot of responsibility alongside that. Um, but at the same time, it's making a real difference in so many ways, you know, with the people that we're working with at the farmer's level. You know, we have sourcing managers, we have botanists, we have phytochemists that are, and analysing all the herbs. So we're able to help people really at local levels in terms of how they 
plant, grow, cultivate, get better yields, get better quality, get better return for themselves and the communities, right through to people who take our teas and our herbal supplements where they get better benefits from the medicinal grade herbs that we use, basically. So everyone wins, really. Are you very keen on ensuring that the people who are growing certain things for you specifically have good lives and, and their income is... Yeah, it's really important, you know, but about a quarter of the herbs that are used in products around the world are from, from the wild, basically. So as the, the awareness of herbs are good for you kind of gets into more people's consciousness and start buying products, there's more demand on the wild to actually be able to sustain this demand, basically. So we've been one of the leading advocates of an initiative called Fair Wild. So when herbs are picked from the wild, it ensures there's enough left behind for the next year, but also enough left behind for the animals, insects and plants and people in those areas to to sustain their lives, basically. So, and we've just joined uh, an initiative called One Percent for the Planet, uh, which is comes out of America. Really, there's a lot of a community of about three thousand businesses in America, and Patagonia were one of the founders of that, that that initiative. And that's really where you say up front you're going to commit one percent of your sales, not profit, but sales to positive environmental change, basically. So, how does that actually work out? So we then commit that back to the organic farmers we work with, to schemes where we offload our carbon emissions. So we're also a carbon neutral company as well. So directly as much as possible to our farmers and growers. You're carbon neutral when you're importing herbs from all over the world, like, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles away. Yeah, we also grow thousands of herbs as well. And those herbs are absorbing all this stuff that's in the atmosphere uh, and cleaning the air for us as well at the same time. But, yeah, we have to offset. And at the moment we're offsetting a project in Uganda where we don't grow herbs. There's an initiative with the Uganda families in helping them with pot stoves and cooking more efficiently as well. So, yeah. So have you ever come across a herb or some sort of wild-growing thing that would have been brilliant for your products or tea, but would have been very bad for the people and thought, no, I, I won't do that? Um, no, we haven't actually. No, never. We've been involved in various things. Um, in India, on the west, there's a spine of hills called the Western Ghats. And it's, yeah, it's where a, my people are from. All right, okay. I'm a Ghatan. A Ghatan, okay. So, <laughs> so that part of the world is endangered and it's a World Heritage Site in terms of protecting the forest there, basically. Some marvellous, glorious, majestic old trees there, which some amazing birds and, and other animals you know, have to live around those areas. So... You know, the locals were apt to cutting the trees down to make some money from the wood and then go off and do something else. So we've worked with an initiative, which is part of the Farewell Project, to actually help the local people pick the fruits from the trees. So we then use those fruits in the trees in our herbal products, basically. So it means that they can go back every year, they get a regular income, and our customers win from some great products from the wild habitats of the world. So you would turn down something if it didn't ethically match all your criteria. Absolutely, yeah. There's a lot of endangered species in the world. So sandalwood, a lot of people don't really know it's really endangered. So maybe when you're buying in sandalwood out on the road or in a shop somewhere, maybe check its authenticity and is it really sustainable where it comes from. To you both now this question, what sacrifices have you made to fulfil your mission statements and where have there been hindrances and where have there been, where's there been help? Dan, let me start with you. Okay, um, I'm not sure whether to tell this, but so I've worked with there's a team of eight of us at Safety Net now, and I've worked unpaid for the last seven years. Um, so it's a bit of a sacrifice financially, but it a does bit. sort of keep me sane. Well, unpaid in that job, I make money elsewhere, but it's something that I've always wanted to do and see through and actually get it to the point where we can have this positive impact. So 
It is enough, genuinely, to sit down and be able to say, we built this thing, it does this thing that we set out to do. And, and wait, essentially, because when or if this thing solves the problem, I expect some sort of a good return on it, right? I mean, you have to. Um, and hindrance-wise, I don't know. I think a lot of the early work in Safety Net was building relationships. And I have to say, actually, the scientific community have been brilliant from the outset. They've been fantastic. Like, we've tried to present ourselves after some initial issues around saying that we sort of understood the science, but actually I didn't know nearly <laughs> enough and spoke a little bit too loudly about it. Um, then moved much to more, more towards that, like, actually what we can present is a technology side of things. So we can help bring that barrier down. So we can test theories for scientists and help you do the experiments you've always wanted to without destroying your, your budgets. And then everybody learns and we can then apply that at the other end two products that help fishermen achieve their goals of fishing more sustainably and fitting in with laws and all the things around that. The hindrances probably come, I think, much more from the business side of things. So firstly, I've had to learn a lot in the last few years to actually figure out how we're going to do that business model. Mm. But I think in terms of the innovation side of things and the funding, mm. it hasn't been that forthcoming. And it's been quite tricky to try and sort of get that involved with us to really give us the catalyst to actually speed this stuff up and do more effective work, I think. So we've sort of bootstrapped it, but then all startups do. Um, I think we've just bootstrapped it quite a lot. What's given you the most sleepless night, do you think? Uh, testing. So actually sending off products to people, scientists, and saying, put this in the water, do all your things. You've invested time and money in getting boats and fishermen and, and your own time. Mm -hmm. And we've given you a technology thing that has to work. And then waiting for the phone call, which either says it blew up oh. or it, it did what it was supposed to. How many blew up? Uh, I could count them on one hand. Okay. Well, I, I thought you might say none of them did. I was just, you know, y using emotive language. But uh, if you but, did, did mm, they? I think, I think all companies go through this. You learn sure. as you go. And we, it's never happened again. It didn't blow up anyway. But. No, but these are, these are the good things for people listening to know. Mm. You know, what gives everybody a sleep? What gives you sleepless nights, Tim? Or what has given you your worst sleepless night in your career so far in, with Pucker? Um... Well, I think it's really about the people, actually, uh, making sure that we, you know, we're comfortable with the people that we have and that they are comfortable at Pucca, really, because we've got all this great work going on with the farmers and growers and uh, our customers, and it's really ensuring that the people we have at Pucca are working really well, they're motivated, they're in, you know, full control of what they want to do. You know, when you're starting off from your kind of, like, spare bedroom, you kind of... Mm. You kind of know how to do all of it, really. So then you've got to kind of pass it over to someone else. And I think the hardest thing is really how you pass on, pass on the responsibilities and the authority and the accountability to other people. So, and doing that in a way which is fair to everyone, really. At the end of the day. So, what sort of sacrifices did you make in the beginning, and perhaps you're still making them? Yeah, well, it's, I think that the people thing links to the sacrifices because people don't really realise how much sacrifice you've made. So the first two or three years. We didn't pay ourselves, but we weren't doing anything else, so we were just living off our savings. We just got £2,500 out of the bank each, and that was it for two years. We put it into the into the business, really. So that was a massive sacrifice. And I guess it's just this avid commitment, really. I mean, it, it kind of gives you tunnel vision, and that tunnel vision can be disturbing for other people in your life sometimes, basically. So it's sacrificed quite a lot in terms of personal endeavours, really. But, you know, it's we believe, and I think it's all worth it, really, at the end of the day. I think that's a really sorry, interesting point to pick up on the one that you made before, Tim, about transferring things to other people. So in order to get there, you have to obviously do that. And I think as we've grown only very slowly, like one of the most amazing emancipating things around that is that at someone else, it becomes their responsibility to go and do it. But the first bit of time where you're starting to work with those people and you're, you're not always looking at these things anymore and you're having to then 
trust that someone else is going to do it as well as you think you would, even if you wouldn't necessarily do it as well as them, is a massive handoff. It's, it's a huge investment. Dan, talking of investment, how have you managed to fund all the research? So we have had some funding from the European Union, well, European Commission, I should say. Horizon 2020 funding is a massive science to commercialisation funding scheme, which helps SMEs, but also academic institutions and bigger businesses work together. So all our trials have been funded by them, well, almost all of them, sorry, and the technology development as well, some of it is that too. But in the early days, it was things like Pitch to Rich, and it was things like other competitions that enable us to have the sort of cash to actually build prototypes, and then send them to people and say, what do you think, and test them. And that was the seed funding we needed, really. How amazing. Dan, you mentioned just a moment ago that you were in the Pitch to Rich competition, otherwise known as Voom, in 2012. Well, this year the competition's hotting up as we approach the live finale where businesses will be pitched to Richard Branson, Tyra Banks, Sarah Blakely and Marcus Butler for the chance to win their share of £1 million worth of business support and prizes. Well, this year Virgin Unite will also be presenting the Impact Award, highlighting and celebrating entrepreneurs with businesses that have social and environmental impact. The winner will join Virgin Unite's Disrupting for Good 2017 gathering with its inspirational programme of high-profile speakers and guests on Richard Branson's Necker Island. My next guest had the honour of being there last year and, in fact, was the only UK business leader invited to take part. So I'm really pleased to welcome Nathaniel Pete of GenNext to the studio. Hello. Hi, how are you? Nathaniel, before we talk about what that experience was like, explain yeah. what you do at GenX because it is extraordinary. Well, GenX is a renewable energy company um, operating in the Caribbean and also in Africa. And um, you see there's huge problems with energy poverty around the world. There's currently about 1.25 billion people around the world that don't have access to electricity. That's a huge problem for young people studying when they're using kerosene lanterns. They come home, they knock the lantern over, it burns them. It's a problem for baby incubators in hospitals in rural parts of Africa. When the power cut goes or when the diesel runs out of the generator, those babies cannot survive. Energy poverty is a real problem. So what Genix is doing is trying to empower you know, people on the ground, but we're doing it in a disruptive way. Just tell me what GenNex stands for, by the way, because it's G-E-N-N-E-X. That's right. It, it basically means a beginning and a breakthrough. And um, you see, the X part is like Exodus. Have you heard that song by Bob Marley? Of course. Exodus, right? It basically is a liberation from something. It's breaking out of something, a condition or a circumstance. And because we're trying to disrupt around energy poverty and empower people's lives through electricity, that's basically helping to break through. Mm. Women in Africa, about 80% of them, have less than secondary school education. I mean, you've got women which are agriculturally proficient, they're able to do things in the community, but then they are not allowed to excel in education. So what we're trying to do is to teach women and young people how to build some of our solar, how to install the solar in the houses, how to go out and disrupt socially by selling it and helping that to diffuse deep into rural parts of Africa. So you say solar, you need to explain what, what the, how they are putting together solar. How does this work? Yeah, so basically what we do is we get the components and then we build it into a STEM curriculum. So then they have 
several weeks worth of education around what renewable energy is. Then we teach them the electronics, they learn how to build it, they learn how to solder it, they put it together, then they go and learn the business skills and then they diffuse that into the community and sell it. And what is the it? That's solar lanterns, solar chargers, which solar chargers are really important because the solar chargers are used to then go into rural communities where farmers require their phones on. Let me give an example. A, a, a cow gets sick. They're in a rural village. They're 30 kilometres away. It holds the business up because they don't have the ability to call a doctor to come out. What does that mean for the industry? It means the industry can't grow. It means that farmer now is stuck with potentially a dead cow. It has a huge impact then locally because the village is not able to survive or the person is not having a salary now because the cow is not producing the milk anymore. And so it has a huge domino effect and it has a massive impact on a village. It, it is a huge problem. It, it holds up so much. So, Nathaniel, the idea of all this energy poverty throughout the world being able to be reversed by a product like yours is extraordinary. It sounds so obvious when we think about it. Why do you think nobody thought about this before, harnessing solar power? Not only that, but empowering women to actually make these products and young people. Well, the thing is, the model is not a unique model. I mean, solar has been around from day dot. Now, the disruption that we're trying to do is really to try to help people to maintain devices. China's been pushing solar renewable energy products into Africa for many years. It will go into a rural village. The rural villager will not understand that when the panel gets dirty, it's not going to have the same amount of light energy getting in through to the battery, which then gives them power. So the knowledge was not being diffused with the use of the products. That then created on the ground people that were unsure about how solar was effective. Now, by training and by teaching people how to maintain the devices, it assists us then with diffusing that through into communities. So where have you rolled out this scheme so far? We've mainly been off operating in Kenya. We actually did a partnership with the Green in Kenya Initiative. Uh, we ran that across some of the most rural areas of Kenya just to test the device to see how it works. And how's it doing? It's doing fantastic. We actually ran um, a program with one of the telcos where we gave some of our solar charges to people to see what the impact would be in keeping their phones on. We measured that. We managed to then find out which product would go the furthest. And so by testing on the ground locally, rurally, we actually then got the needs of the people. So that's innovation that's come out through the ground. Now, where you've got imports into the country, it's really expensive, which is part of the reason why we had to think about importing bits and pieces separately and then setting up assembly on the ground. How long have you been doing this? Officially, we've been doing it for about two to three years, but we started way before then. So we started about two years before then. And what made you want to do it? What's motivated you to do this? Well, the motivation has been just a cognizant understanding of what energy poverty causes. My family comes from a you know rural part of Jamaica. In Jamaica, there's uh, huge uh, energy problems as well in rural areas. My business partner, Dawa, uh, also comes from Nigeria. So she's very cognizant of what it's like to be without power for two days or even four days or five days. And so uh, my background's engineering. And by going into these communities and seeing and understanding that myself, 
it really motivated me to actually look to make a difference. And you're essentially helping other people be entrepreneurial. That's the core of what you do. So do you think that as a people across the world, we're doing enough to nurture this? Are big businesses doing enough? Well, I think big businesses um, need to do a bit more. There's a lot of dynamics changing, especially in the UK. I mean, there's a lot of big messaging around sort of business for good. And, uh, but I think the global community really could do more. The CSR models need revamping. It can't just be a, a PR look good factor. There's really got to be some level of sustainability. Business has to shift from making profit to thinking about profit with purpose. That basically means then empowering people, elevating people from poverty and looking to you know, change and disrupt the social ills of society. So there's a long way to go, but I think we're definitely getting there. And you've been recognised for your work across the years. Uh, you won the Enterprising Young Brit Award back in 2007. Yep. You've taken part in G20 summits. And last year, uh, you were flown to Necker Island, that's in the British Virgin Islands, to Richard Branson's home for a special gathering. What was that like? I mean, that was amazing. <laughs> you can probably hear the, uh, the excitement in, the, I, you know, I in my voice. I mean, you know, we've been pushing hard for a long time and um, it's very difficult to do business um, as a startup um, anywhere. But when you're trying to do business in the developing world where you're facing things like corruption, um, you're facing things like higher charges because of your voice, uh, because you speak with an English accent. Um, what? I'm serious. You go on the ground, um, they automatically believe that you've got money. So, you, you know, you're in a position now whereby the pound um, is attached to your, the way you speak. Um, and so you recognize very quickly that you've got to equip yourself with the necessary skills to first get past these obstacles so that you can actually then, you know, have some level of impact. Um, where you find out that the people you've employed are part of the corruption ring mm-hmm. and having to, uh, you know, discover that. Uh, the, the, the challenges were almost getting to the point of thinking, why on earth am I doing this? And the actual competition came up with Virgin Unite and they were looking for disruptive businesses. And so we put in our, our thing. We, we had a lot of video footage um, of what we do and they... They liked it. And um, basically, I had to do a presentation. Um, Richard Branson actually interviewed me. So that was amazing. Um, so Richard, Were you nervous? Actually, I wasn't as nervous as I thought I would be because we'd had a couple of days to familiarize ourselves. Mm. And it was a really friendly environment. It was no ears or graces. It was just cool and easy. Mm. But the people were just amazing. I mean, global movers and shakers. And some of the conversations I got into with some of the people that were there was just amazing. And we listened to other presenters on the island. We spoke about how we could disrupt on some major issues globally together. And um, there has been some traction from Necker Island, which I can't talk too much about now. But okay. um, so Branson actually introduced me to somebody. And uh, then there was another person that I've been introduced to as well as a result of the Necker Island experience. How fantastic. Nathaniel, thank you so much. And we should also say a huge good luck to the Voom entrants in this year's competition going for the Impact Award and that chance to follow in Nathaniel's footsteps to Necker Island and in their businesses in general. Still at the table in the studio with me are Dan Watson and Tim Westwell. And a question to all of you now, in fact, we've talked a lot about the importance of being conscious in terms of how your business impacts the world. But how do you decide where the line is between making profit and contributing to supporting a good cause? 
Dan, you first. Wow. Uh, that is a, <laughs> that's a tough one. Uh, draw a line. So I think in our case, in order for us to have a sustained and sustainable impact, we need to be able to run a business. So we need to maybe make profit through that in order to reinvest that as well back into the business to make sure we can keep innovating and we can keep coming up with the new solutions people need as we extend how we impact the world around us. And you can't do that for free. You can't have people working their best if you're not paying them properly. And you need to make sure that actually you are able to do that in a sustainable way. It doesn't mean taking advantage of people, but it does mean being sensible about your business choices and not just throwing everything at something. Tim? Yeah, I guess it's quite interesting because we we have to make a profit. Mm-hmm. That's it, simple. Uh, if we don't have a profit, we don't have a purpose in, in, alive. So, um, you know, we've probably put too much back in some ways um, to show that we're really, really healthy. But we, So we've lived on the edge quite a lot, really. So investing to people, you know, I mentioned before about how you keep ahead of the curve. So you're kind of always investing for the future right now today. So it's taking that chance every day in people, in systems, in maybe going into new markets as well. And then hopefully having enough left to feed the purpose at the end of the day. But they're not separated. So they're intertwined, they're threaded together. Mm -hmm. So every pound we sell, you know, know, 1% of that will go to 1% for the planet, basically. So the more we sell, the more we give back the profit and it is the tool that enables us to do that. Dan, do you have any questions for either Nathaniel or Tim? Because they've both stepped forward in different ways from your business right now. Anything that you would like advice on or anything that you would like to just scratch a little deeper beneath the surface on? Um, I guess for both you, you obviously had a lot of drive to do this. I guess probably people listening would love to know how you kept at it. I think what it, the single thing that you sort of, or maybe multiple things that you focused on to keep going and what your end vision was. Good question. It's interesting because the end vision was never really highly defined for me. It was really about the purpose and where the, the journey of the purpose would take us to, really. Probably the same as you, Nathaniel, as well, yeah, in some absolutely. ways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's offsetting the the energy poverty around the world for for us. And um, But then probably more importantly now, it's actually legacy because when I look at all the great um, leaders, they've always left something that, you know, has dynamically shifted something. Like who? Um, Nelson Mandela, for instance. And, you know, we have an ability to do that through business. And I think, I think business is the platform to create that change. And you can absolutely not do it without income. So you've got to really think about commercial business for good. <laughs> You're making money to ensure that you can actually disrupt change. Sure. I think, you know, it just goes hand in hand at the end of the day, basically. And legacy is really important because you get bigger. Um, it's how you maintain those values. So when this Tim and Seb they started by curves together in one room mm. it's really easy to talk about your values because they're inherent you don't actually just talk about them you just feel them and know them but when you get to about 100 people now in our business we've got now got a program where we've developed these things called wisdom seeds basically so these are our values that we set up from ancient traditions around the world which are about truth respect purity and effort and how we bring those to life in what we do in meetings in products and in situations basically it's really really important so how you keep going we'll keep going through ensuring you've got some good anchor points that keep in contact with your values and keeps your your family of people that work with you and your customers together as well i love that concept of wisdom seeds i'm going to take that away with me amongst other things today so what's next for your business nathaniel 
Well, we registered in Zambia. Um, we're also registered in Jamaica. And um, it's really to try to replicate some of the models that we have uh, done in, in both Jamaica and, and also in Kenya. It's about scaling up for us. It's ensuring that we don't become a victim of our own success. So it's building in the framework to ensure that we can scale and that we can be successful. So our next steps is to, is to really just expand into more countries and, and, and sell more product and also train more people. Dan, what's next for your business? So we're still doing lots of trials, but in the next six months, we're going to be releasing our first mass market product for fishermen. Tim? Expanding more internationally. Over half our business is overseas, so America and Germany, Scandinavia are key markets for us. So just going further into those markets. And on the, on the back end, we're selling tea to India and sell, starting to sell tea to China at the moment. So, Oh, watch, my goodness. So, <laughs> it's you know, we're, half our business is exporting now. So um, let's see what happens um, uh, with the European stuff mm. coming up. I, I don't know about the timing of what I can say here because <laughs> probably that's all happened by now. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so right. much. A massive thank you to my guest today, to Tim Westwell of Pucker Herbs, to Dan Watson of Safety Net Technologies and Nathaniel Pete of GenX. The Voom podcast is a Pixie production for Virgin Media Business. And remember, to find out more about Virgin Media Business's Voom campaign, head to vmbvoom.com or Twitter using the hashtag Voom at vmbusiness. And next time, we'll have news from the final stage of the competition, where businesses make one of the biggest pitches of their lives to Richard Branson, Tyra Banks, Sarah Blakely and Marcus Butler. Until then, from me, Nikki Beatty and the Voom podcast team, goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.